you would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter number one. We're going to begin a new series of sermons here in the book of Hebrews. We'll be here for a while. This is among my favorite books in the New Testament, one that I have been uh, looking forward to being able to begin with you as a body. Hebrews has, uh, as the most books in the New Testament, a theological theme and then a practical theme. The theological theme is really simply stated here. You'll hear me say this again and again and again. I can give it to you in just three words. In fact, this is the overarching theme, the primary theme of the book of Hebrews. Here it is. Jesus is better. Whatever it is that is vying for your attention, your affections, your allegiance, whatever it feels has this gravitational pull or tug on your life and heart, Jesus is better. The sin that easily entangles you, those things that tend to distract or divert your attention away from the things of God, Jesus is better. No matter what it is that the world lays before you, Jesus is better. This unfolds throughout the book of Hebrews. In fact, from beginning to end, this is the theme. In chapter 1, verses 4 and following, and through the majority of chapter 2, the theme is that Jesus is better than the angels. It's not that there's something wrong with angels. They're good, right? But Jesus is better. In chapter 3, the focus of that chapter is Jesus' supremacy over Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. It's not that there's something wrong with Moses. And understand, we're talking here in a Jewish context. Moses is the preeminent prophet. He is the man, right? We don't have good points of reference for understanding some of these comparisons that are being drawn. But I promise you, in the mind of a first century Jew and in the mind of many Jews today, Moses can't be beat. And what the book of Hebrews says to us is that Jesus is even better than the preeminent prophet Moses. In fact, it says Moses was faithful in the house as a servant of God, but Jesus built the house. He is faithful over the house. Jesus is better. In chapter 4, the Bible says that Jesus is better than Joshua. Joshua led the people of Israel out of, uh, across the, the Jordan and out of that 40 years of wilderness wandering. And the promise of Joshua's conquest and his leadership was to provide for the people rest, to lead them into a land that flowed with milk and honey. And to some extent, only partially, Joshua was able to deliver on that promise. But Jesus has come to give us the fullness of rest. Fear not, I have overcome the world, Jesus says. And he's promised to deliver us into a land that truly flows with milk and with honey. In the next section of Hebrews, the focus is on the superiority of Jesus over the high priest. Jesus is better than Aaron. The high priests are good. High priests serve an important role in the history of Israel, in redemptive history, in God's plan for the nation of Israel. High priests are good, and they are important, but Jesus is better. Whereas the earthly high priest provides for an annual sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people, Jesus makes a once and forever atonement for the sins of those entrusted to his care. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus has come to inaugurate or to institute a new covenant. And chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews tells us that the covenant that Jesus institutes is even better than the old covenant. 
nullifying, voiding the old covenant. We have been brought now into a new covenant, an unconditional covenant whereby God has pledged his allegiance and sworn his covenant love for us. Jesus' covenant is better than the old covenant. I'm just telling you, Jesus is better. Chapter after chapter, verse after verse, the theme of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus over all things. Now, I said to you, there is a theological theme or message and a practical message in the book of Hebrews, and they're coupled together in this beautiful way. The practical message of Hebrews is perseverance, to to run the race set before you well, to finish well. By the way, that ought to be a goal for believers at every station in life. If you're a new believer or a believer in what you believe to be the last leg of your life, your goal, your focus ought to be to run this race well, to live our last days faithfully serving Jesus. As a pastor, years ago, in the early days of my ministry, you know, you sort of had these ideas about where you want to be and things that you want to do and achieve, and God has radically changed that outlook, trust me. But you have these goals that you set for yourself over the course of time. But I think at this place in my life, my my goal is to run the race well, meaning love my wife unto death, see my kids brought up in the training and admonition of Jesus, see my grandchildren, God willing, come to faith in Christ, and finish without doing anything to shame myself, my family, the church, or my Savior. Our goal ought to be at every place along the way to finish the race set before us well, to fight a good fight. Now, this is emphasized at a number of points along the way in the book of Hebrews. I'll give you a couple of examples. Chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. Stay the course, stay the course, stay the course. In chapter 3 and verse 14, the Bible says, For we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality we had at the start. So here the Bible says the way you evaluate saving faith is not by the way you begin the race, but how you end the race. And here verse 14 says your salvation is true if you hold fast to the reality with which you began in the first place. Then in chapter 6, let's look at chapter 4, verse 11. There's a bunch of these examples. Chapter 4, verse 11, here's the last example I'll give you this morning. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Persevere, persevere, persevere. Now, here's what makes that so incredibly relevant. I realize this is a long introduction, but here's why this is important. We're writing here the book of Hebrews to Jewish Christians, newly converted Jewish Christians, being called out of a cultural experience that had defined their life. Now, we have the benefit, living where we live, of so much of our culture accommodating our Christian convictions. Our major holidays and celebrations, the things that we do, are are largely conformed to a Christian ethic. But imagine you're being called out of Judaism in the first century, called away from festival celebrations and family gatherings that might revolve around such things, called into the body of Christ that has positioned itself in many ways as the contrast to the Judaism from which you've come. Their whole life is changing. Brothers and sisters, there are challenges that come with that. 
It's relevant to us because this is in so many ways our experience. In spite of the ways that our culture has accommodated certain convictions, more and more our convictions are in conflict with the culture around us. More and more our conversion from the ways of this world into the body of Christ is viewed as a radical transformation, not only by us who understand it to be so, but the world around us who would have us to be ostracized and pressed out. Lonely is a difficult place to be. And you're constantly wrestling with decisions between accommodating the culture of this world and holding fast to your convictions in the faith, the gospel, once and for all delivered to the saints. There's, there's relevance here for us because we are in some respects walking in the sandals of first century Jews, wrestling against a cultural tide that would have them to go one way while trying to heed the voice of Jesus, calling them to go in an altogether different direction. Now, here's the secret and the beauty of this companionship between the theological theme and the practical theme of Hebrews. Do you know the secret to running the race well, to finishing well? You want to know the secret to persevering in the faith to the end? It is to fix your thoughts and your attention on the theological theme of the book that Jesus is better. Preach to your evil heart that Jesus is better than the sin that entices you in the moment. Preach to your heart the goodness and the glory of Jesus and all that he's done to bring you out of your sin and into his grace. This is the mystery. This is the secret. Perseverance and the supremacy of Jesus are coupled together in a beautiful way here in the book of Hebrews. We'll spend the next several weeks exploring this relationship. Now, I know you've found your way to Hebrews 1 by now. I've heard you turning around. Let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of our text for this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says here, Long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became higher in rank than the angels, just as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Note what is said in verse 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. What the author of Hebrews is saying to his congregation is this, your fathers, and by extension you, enjoyed in times past a great advantage in that God had revealed himself uniquely through what we now know as the Old Testament. Now, God has revealed himself everywhere, so much so that the Bible says that all mankind is without excuse, for the heavens and the earth are telling the glory of our God. I enjoy the outdoors. I used to enjoy the outdoors a lot more before my children got to this high-maintenance place in life that they found themselves in recent years, but I enjoy the outdoors. 
And uh, one, one of the things that over the course of time I've come to enjoy about the outdoors, especially in the spring, I, I'm, I'm not ordinarily an early morning person except during the holy month of turkey season. <laughs> and there's just something about watching the world wake up on a spring morning. There's something about that that speaks resurrection. I, I think Jesus rose from the dead during the spring of the year by design, right? Not only is, is like every, the foliage is coming to life, things are blooming, but the world just comes alive. It's like you flip a switch at daybreak and the world awakens around you. It is a glorious thing. I really can't fathom, nor can I fathom as an unbeliever, how it is that someone could look across the creation and not come to the conclusion that there is some intelligent designer behind the glory and the beauty and the, the vastness of what we see. We don't even know where the end of the universe is, and we have all the technology that we enjoy today. God has revealed himself in a general sense in that way. But the ancestors of the Jews, the Jews themselves and our forebears in the faith, enjoyed an advantage beyond the general revelation of God in creation. God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. That is, God reveals something of his character, his nature, his divinity, his goodness, his righteousness in the pages of the Old Testament. Think for a moment with me of the ways that God reveals himself in Scripture. In the book of Genesis, God reveals himself to be the creator God, powerful over all the universe. In the book of Exodus, God reveals himself as redeemer God who goes and calls his people Israel out of their Egyptian bondage and sets them on a course toward the promised land. In the book of Leviticus, God reveals himself to be holy, holy, holy. Passage after passage, God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. In the book of Numbers, God seems to make it clear that he is a personal God invested and involved in the lives of his people. There's constant interaction between God and the covenant people of Israel, intervening in certain intervals, bringing chastening or discipline at other times, bringing restoration and reconciliation and even hope and healing at certain points along the way. In the book of Deuteronomy, God is clearly a God of order setting forth something of a constitution, a structure, an order, a law book for the people of Israel to operate by, and at the same time revealing himself to be a God who is involved in human history, charting the course for his people, the nation of Israel. In the book of Joshua, God reveals himself to be the conquering warrior and the God of rest, going before the people of Israel, defeating those nations who would oppose them and providing for them a place to settle themselves and to find the long-awaited rest after their wilderness journeys. In the book of Judges, in a strange way, God reveals himself to be a God of providence and of goodness, even during a season of great rebellion. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And in spite of that, in the face of Israel's faithlessness, God proved himself faithful, providing deliverer after deliverer after deliverer. Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, that season of kings, the monarch in Israel and in Judah, God taught the people of Israel of his kingship. And by extension, he's taught us of his kingship. The irony in that period of Israel's history is they begin by asking for a king like other nations. 
in some ways, casting off or dismissing the kingship of God over the nation of Israel. King after king after king after king in that interval in their history proved to them a lesson that we are still learning today. You cannot usurp the authority of our king. God bears all authority, and he is just the kind of king that we've always been waiting for. God is the leader we've longed for. In Proverbs, God reveals himself to be the very personification of wisdom. God is wise. He knows what is right and often has the ability, this incredible way of communicating volumes of wisdom in a single stroke. In the book of Psalms, God reveals himself to be a God who is worthy of our worship and our praise in song after song after song. And at the same time, a God who is concerned for his people so much that he draws near in comfort, promising to be with us, the rod and staff of protection, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Job, God shows himself to be the sovereign God even over the catastrophes and great losses of life that even when we don't have eyes of faith to see it, he is at work for our good and for his glory. In the prophets, God reveals himself to be a God of great judgment while at the same time a God of restoration and reconciliation and redemption and great mercy toward the remnant that are his people. In Jeremiah, God shows himself to be the bearer of a new covenant a covenant that would nullify and void the old covenant and provide for us what could not be provided through the old, no longer a law written externally in books and on scrolls, but a law that's etched in our heart, a covenant signed and sealed and delivered by the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53 of that book. From the beginning to the end of the Old Testament, God is revealing himself in some of the most powerful ways. And I would add to that, because of that, you ought to invest time there and know God through the pages of the Old Testament. But I want you to know beyond that, beyond that, and this is not to minimize, to marginalize, to dismiss in any way the significance of the Old Testament. I want you to know that beyond that, Jesus has revealed the Father in perfection. There were advantages for our forebears in the faith before the time of Christ. They had access to the Old Testament. But if you have seen Jesus, brothers and sisters, you have seen the Father. The Bible says again in verse 1, long ago God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Now, often books of the Old Testament come to us the way books in the New Testament do. By virtue of simple inspiration, prophet puts pen to page. And here we have, by the providence of God, through the preservation of time and the work of God's Holy Spirit, the inspired, infallible, and inerrant word of God in the Old Testament. But there are some really strange ways that God chooses to communicate that down through history, right? With Moses, it was a burning bush where God self-identified as the I am. Moses tell them, I am sent you. He appeared as the angel of the Lord before Abram, instructing him of the promise held forth for him before Abraham was even Abraham. Through visions and dreams to Joseph and to Daniel, God revealed himself in his plan for human history. To Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, one like the Son of God among them in the fiery furnace. Often we find prophets who are acting out. They're these sort of props that they use in communicating God's message, often in strange, peculiar ways. These are not the kind of brothers that your search committees are typically looking for in the normal Baptist church, right? 
God even revealed his grace, his mercy, and his faithfulness to an unfaithful people through a harlotrous wife, Gomer, the wife of Hosea the prophet. God instructs Hosea, you go find the wife of prostitution and you pay the price and you bring her back. God even speaks to a stubborn prophet through the mouth of a donkey. God has gone to extreme lengths to communicate something of his character to the people of God in the Old Testament. As great an advantage as that is, and it is a remarkable advantage, we are, e- we are in an even more privileged position. We are advantaged beyond the saints of the Old Testament. For we're looking not so much for the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament as we are reflecting on how it is that God has fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. We have the special benefit of looking on the Lord Jesus Christ who is the exact representation of God who is in heaven. The central focus of these three verses are this. Jesus is a better revelation of God than even the Old Testament. Now, again, that's not to say the Old Testament is bad. It's just to say that Jesus, folks, is better. God, in these last days, has revealed himself through his son. Verse 2 says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You're in an even more advantaged position. You are blessed in that you live on this side of history. And we have the ability to look into the face of Jesus and to know God in ways that exceeds what we might even know in our examinations of the Old Testament. God has revealed himself through his son. Come in close, brothers and sisters, and feel the weight of what God has done on our behalf. Having his son clothed in flesh to dwell among us, this is our God. Brothers and sisters, in the words of John the Baptist, behold the lamb. Colossians 1.18 says that God was pleased to have the fullness of the Godhead dwell bodily in Jesus. That is, all of the attributes of God came to live in Jesus. All of his goodness and grace and mercy and justice and righteousness, all of his love and all of his holiness, it's all in Jesus. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus. In the same passage in Colossians 1.15, the Bible says, He is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see the unseen God, look longingly into the face of Jesus Christ. Christ makes the same contention in his own ministry. John 8.58 saying, Before Abraham was, I am. And there's so much significance packed into that statement. Jesus crossing swords here with the Pharisees. They're claiming some position or prominence because of their connection to Abraham. We are the descendants of Abraham. Jesus' response is, before Abraham was, I am. By the way, not only is Jesus claiming priority over Abraham in terms of chronology, he always was and he always will be the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Jesus is claiming priority over Abraham in every way. Abraham was to be the bearer of a seed that would multiply into a great nation. 
But Jesus is the Savior of people of every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus has excelled Abraham in every conceivable way. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is better than Abraham. But those last two little words, I am, would have rang loudly in the ears of Jesus' listeners. What so often is missed by English readers of the text was clearly understood by those first century Jews who would soon after take up stones to kill him. What Jesus echoes there is the self-identification of God to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Moses says, what am I going to tell them? Who do I tell them? Sent me. God, God said, tell them, I am has sent you. When Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, he's not only claiming supremacy over Abraham, he is identifying with the one true and living God, the great I am. And indeed, he is, he is, he is. God has revealed himself to us in absolute perfection through the sending forth of his only son, Jesus Christ. Now often, People who know me but don't know my children will meet my children, specifically my oldest son, and they will say, he looks just like his daddy. And I will ordinarily respond, God bless him. But this is not that kind of thing. This is not Jesus bearing some resemblance. In fact, the Bible says in verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression or representation of his nature. What I'm saying to you is that Jesus is God, one with the Father. Jesus is divine. Before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. John 14, 9, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So here's, here's the conclusion we reach on the basis of that. If you, if you want to know God, your only means for knowing him is Jesus. The only way that you can truly know the God of heaven is to know his son, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, we have this list of descriptions of who he is and what it is that he's done for us. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pause here and take an inventory as to what these verses tell us about our Savior, Jesus. In verse 1, we learn that Jesus is better than the prophets, whereas they spoke as they were inspired of a Christ who was to come. Jesus is the Christ to come. Further in verse 2, the Bible says that Jesus is the heir of all things, that is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and even the inheritance that we enjoy by faith is an inheritance handed to us through the sonship of Jesus. Verse 2 tells us further that he is the creator of all things. And we learn later in the passage that not only is he the creator of all things, he is the sustainer of all things. He has made us as we are, flung the universe into its existence, and at this very moment is holding all things together. He is the exact representation of God's character. In Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. 
He is the radiance of God's glory, the radiance of God's glory. He is the great high priest who atones for our sin and the intercessor who prays on our behalf, seated at the right hand of God. I want us to focus for just a few moments on the last part of verse number three, that last sentence. I'm not shortchanging you and not dealing with verse four. I realize that's included in that initial paragraph in most translations, but that really serves as sort of a transitional sentence into the theme that we'll take up in the next installment of our series in Hebrews. Focus there in the last sentence of verse three. The Bible says there, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. One of the things I think that makes Hebrews daunting or challenging to people who are reading through is, is that there's so, there's so much Jewish cultural perspective that is assumed on the part of the writer because the audience is exclusively Jewish. I don't want you to be intimidated or afraid of the book of Hebrews the way some people can be. There's nothing to be intimidated by. We just have to do our best to put on our Jewish thinking caps as we read along. This is one of those places in the book of Hebrews where if we fail to put on our Jewish thinking caps, we might miss the significance of what has just been described. Because for the first century reader, what is said in verse 3 may be the most amazing, the most audacious, the most outrageous claim made in the book of Hebrews. Read again. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, this is a reference to the high priest's responsibility under the old covenant to go into the holy of holies and to make an annual atoning sacrifice for the people of Israel. Within the temple, there are various layers and you might be permitted into various layers on the basis of your ethnicity, on the basis of your gender. You might even be permitted on the basis of your family lineage. If you are part of the Levitical priesthood or you're a part of some priestly family, you might be involved in some level. But no one outside of the high priest was to have access to the innermost of that temple save the high priest. And even the high priest did not have unlimited access to the Holy of Holies. Rather, it was by prescription. As God laid down, as God gave access in the Old Testament, he was to have access to that place, that place of God's fierce presence, and he was there to make an atoning sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 16, you have the day of atonement prescribed for the people of Israel. It's referred to today in contemporary circles and among Jews in the modern age as Yom Kippur. You'll hear it mentioned on the news from time to time. And the high priest was to take the blood of a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, and he was to apply the sacrificial blood to the mercy seat, which was the foot of the throne of God. He was to make that atoning sacrifice, and he was to get out. And getting out was a pretty important part of the process. Now, what, what is described here is Jesus fulfilling the responsibility of the high priest. But there's something radically different about Jesus' fulfillment of those responsibilities. Jesus goes in, the Bible says here, making purification for sins. 
And what is made clear later in the book of Hebrews is that this is not an annual activity for Jesus. This is something Jesus does once and for all. So understand with me that Jesus not only provides himself as the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, the source of blood from a sacrifice without spot or blemish. Jesus takes the blood of his own sacrifice and functions as our great high priest, going into the Holy of Holies and applying that blood to the mercy seat, purifying his people of their sins. If you think through the process, it really is a remarkable thing. And it's an illustration in so many ways of how the blood of Jesus covers for our sin. They're, they're beneath the mercy seat is the law of God, the Ark of the Covenant, that central piece in the Holy of Holies that contains the law. You might say God would look down and observe the law before the foot of his throne. But after the high priestly work of Jesus is done, it is no longer the law that the Lord might see as he looks down, but the blood of his Son, the blood that covers us in our transgression the blood that is our place of refuge, the blood that is our rescue, Jesus comes in and purifies us of our sin by the shedding of his blood and its application in all of the appropriate ritual ways before the Father. Now, what the Bible makes clear further in Hebrews is that although that was happening in times past as a shadow of what was to come, Jesus has done that in reality now. Jesus has done that in perfection. Jesus goes in his resurrected body with his sacrificial blood and makes atonement for our sin. But more than that, more than that, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Now, Aaron, or the high priest after him, was to dress himself in a certain way. He was to undergo certain ceremonial cleansing processes in order to make himself acceptable for going into the holy place. It was a place of God's presence, and so it was a place of fierce righteousness. Now, there's a story I don't think that the story is true, but it's gained traction through the years because it's realistic. And the story, would, the story says that they would tie a rope to the high priest's foot so that if he died in the presence of God, he could be dispatched from the Holy of Holies. No one else was going in to get him, right? Now, I don't think that's true, but again, it gains traction because it's realistic given the perception of the fierce righteousness of that place. You get in, you do the job, and you get out, and then you remove the high priestly garb, and you go through a process of ritual cleansing in order to be acceptable for the common from that point forward. This was a very meticulous process. But Jesus goes in. In fact, Jesus traipses in not clothed in the garb of the high priest, but wrapped in his own righteousness. Fit for an environment that was thick with the severe righteousness of God because he in and of himself is perfect in his righteousness. He makes the blood sacrifice necessary for our forgiveness. Without the remission of sin, there is no forgiveness. And then he sits down at the right hand of God because he's well adapted to that kind of environment, and because in some respects his work is finished. 
Now, it's not appropriate to say that the high priestly work of Jesus is completely finished because the Scripture says that he prays for us. The other night, I was able to meet with our leadership team, and, and we began to pray, and then I dismissed and came to the lobby to study the Scripture with you all who were there for my Wednesday night Bible study. And I, I found myself walking down refreshed and encouraged at the knowledge that there was a body of men on the campus of our church who were praying for our church and praying for me even as I was downstairs and, and preaching or teaching in our Bible study. And then there was almost this internal embarrassment that I don't give more thought to the idea that Jesus Christ, God's only son, is at the right hand of God and he is there interceding on my behalf. He is there praying for me. Whenever Satan shows his face to make an accusation against my person, Jesus is there to claim his blood over my life. Brothers and sisters, by the blood of Christ, Jesus prays for us. And so in that sense, the high priestly work of Jesus is unfinished. It will only be finished once we're gathered together and there's no more need for prayer for we bring our petitions in person before the Father. But I want you to know this, and this is what is indicated here and what must be understood this morning. The work of our salvation is finished in Jesus. There is nothing that need be added. There is nothing that can be taken away. It need only be applied by the grace of our God in heaven. Jesus has gone before the Father, made the atoning sacrifice for our sin, and sat down in a position of authority where he pleads our case before the Father eternally. Aren't you glad for what Jesus has done? No wonder the writer of Hebrews says again and again and again and again, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the thing that entices you this morning. Jesus is better than the pride or the ego that prevents you from bending the knee and yielding to his lordship over your life. Jesus is better than anything that this world could offer you. I am convinced by the scripture, but even before that, by my own personal experience, if there was a way to find satisfaction or fulfillment or gladness or joy in this world, I would have long ago found it. But it can only be found in Jesus. I commend him to you this morning. Think of what a remarkable thought this is, that in spite of his supremacy over all things, he's not indebted to come down to us. He's not indebted to condescend in some kind of way to accommodate our foolishness, and yet he does. Inviting us into himself, the promise is to you and your children and your children's children, as many as our God will call, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He's better better than anything this world can afford, better than whatever it is that you're turning over in your imagination today. He is just flat better. Come to him. Do you understand how Jesus' invitation that we come to him is driven by his interest in our well-being? It's not a wicked taskmaster. He knows what's best for us. And the best thing for us, where we stand to enjoy optimal joy, gladness, peace, pleasure, satisfaction, in Christ, in Christ. Don't buy the cheap counterfeit. Come to Jesus. You'll find that he's better. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word and for its truth. Thank you for sending forth your only son 
that he would make purification for our sins and be seated in a position of great power. God, I pray that you would help us to meditate on the goodness of Jesus, on the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily in our Savior. I, I pray that our every thought, that the meditation of our mind, Lord, would be on the things of Christ, and that that knowledge, that those quiet considerations would serve to keep us, to hold us, to sustain us, that we might run the race set before us well. God, help us, keep us, protect us, hold us fast. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.